at the end of the day, we can provide these structures and opportunities. You know, litigation obviously provides a particular structure. Collaborative does as well. But it's ultimately up to the clients to take advantage of the opportunities that they're given. You're listening to the Texas Family Law Insiders Podcast, your source for the latest news and trends in family law in the state of Texas. Now here's your host, Attorney Holly Draper. Today, we're excited to welcome David Brunson to the Texas Family Law Insiders Podcast. David is the president of LifeWay Financial Corporation, a fee-only financial planning and investment management firm located in Plano, Texas. He holds the Certified Financial Planner, Certified Financial Analyst, and Certified Divorce Financial Analyst designations, and is a member of the Financial Planning Association, the CFA Institute, the Institute for Certified Divorce Financial Analysts, Collaborative Divorce Texas, and the International Academy of Collaborative Professionals. David has a Bachelor's of Science in Mechanical Engineering from Texas Tech University, guns up, and an MBA with a concentration in finance from UT Arlington. He also holds a graduate study certificate in alternative dispute resolution from SMU. David has published numerous articles and is a frequent speaker and trainer in the area of neutrality and interdisciplinary teams within the collaborative divorce process. Thank you so much for joining us today. Glad to be here, Holly. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I'm native Texan, grew up in Dallas. When I got out of college, I was an engineer for a while and decided to change careers. Went back and got my master's degree at UTA. Got into fee-only financial planning and investment management back in the mid-80s. And um, that was kind of unheard of back then. And time has gone on and time has moved quickly. And uh, now I do a lot of work in the divorce area. So why don't you tell us, kind of describe your current practice for us. I don't know if practice is the right term in the financial no, that's, world. That's yeah, so so we kind of have our core business, which is our financial planning and investment management firm. It's a, it's a family firm, and uh, we've been in business now for 21 years. I started that after I got my master's degree in 86. I went to work for um, Dave Dieselin in Fort Worth, who was doing family financial planning. Great guy and kind of a pioneer in the area. Um, then I had uh, moved around a little bit uh, in that career and worked for a trust company for a while. And then when I came back to Texas to raise my kids, I kind of am a lifelong learner. So I went uh, at SMU. They were having this program, uh, this graduate certificate in dispute resolution. And I thought, well, I work with clients. So understanding a little bit more about conflict, a little bit more about disputes would be a good thing to do. So I went and joined that program and got my graduate certificate. And, and while I was there, they didn't really have a, uh, a financial course. And as we know, Holly, that just about every dispute has to do with money to some extent. And um, so I told the program director, I said, you know, you really ought to have a finance class. And so he said, well, hey, I teach this family law class. It's kind of a mediation class, I guess you'd really call it, because it qualified for people to become mediators and meet their hours. So why don't you come in and, and give a talk about the financial side? So I came in and on a couple of classes he had, I did a talk about you know finance and disputes and things like that. And he liked it. So he said, well, hey, would you be considered being an adjunct professor at SMU? I said, sure. So I did that for 10 years. I worked as an adjunct at SMU in their dispute resolution program for about 10 years and taught a class or two a year, which was plenty, and really enjoyed it. It's a lot of work, met a lot of great people. 
But then in um, about 2000 is when collaborative law became codified in Texas and came to Texas. And then in about 0304, they started working in collaborative teams, bringing in financial neutrals, mental health neutrals into collaborative cases to help. Uh, because in the beginning, it was kind of a two attorney, two client model in a, in a collaborative uh, setting. That didn't work particularly well in many cases because you still had the two attorneys and the two clients. And uh, I think it was difficult to keep it collaborative. And so there were some new models coming out at that time where they were adding financial neutrals and mental health neutrals and went to our training class. And I believe it was January 2004, met a lot of great people and attorneys here in the Dallas area that were interested in collaborative and interested in making it interdisciplinary teams. And uh, I had my first case as a finan- being a financial neutral in a collaborative case in 2004. So it's been 17 years and I've been doing that. So that's kind of my side practice, so to speak, versus my core practice. But they obviously meld together. Do you work with people involved in traditional divorce litigation in addition to collaborative? I, I do, but I don't do litigation support in the sense of I don't do valuations, I don't testify, things like that. What I typically am called on from litigation attorneys are, hey, I've got this client, she really or he really needs to be educated about finance, he really needs to be educated about their estate, can you come in and be an advocate and kind of help them? And obviously, since I'm a financial planner and a lot about investments as well in my core practice, it's kind of a natural fit because you're really just advising people on this kind of new world that they're going to be in post-divorce. And so um, a lot of times I'll come in and help the attorneys educate their clients uh, or even look at an option they may be considering in a case and kind of getting my neutral opinion on it because uh, maybe the clients stopped listening to their attorney. Hard to believe. <laughs> so sometimes I can come in there. And so I really act as a support to the attorneys in, in their litigation process. But I don't do traditional as you would think of a financial person coming in and valuing companies or testifying in court, I don't do that. I, I did that years and years ago and did not enjoy that. So I decided I don't want to do that. I really want to stick to being a neutral and collaborative and then supporting attorneys on the uh, on the advocacy side when and if and when they need it. So I mentioned kind of during your intro that you hold several designations, certified financial planner, certified financial analyst, and certified divorce financial analyst. Can you talk about what each of those are, how you get to become one, and why an attorney or a potential client that needs financial planning services would want to see any of those designations? Yeah, so the the CFP, the Certified Financial Planner, uh, obviously is a designation that um, is for folks that are actually engaged in doing a financial planning process for clients on an active basis. So obviously, as an organization that creates that designation, when I got mine, which was in the late 80s, many years ago, I would say the program was just in kind of its infancy in terms of building itself as a credible program. And today it's a very robust and strong program and not an easy thing to get in terms of getting a CFP, uh, getting your designation. But it's really for people who are doing active financial planning where you're trying to set goals for clients, understand what their goals and interests are gathering data, looking at options, helping them strategize, you know, financial planning issues around 
their assets, taxes, cash flow, insurance, estate issues, things like that, which obviously you deal with in a divorce as well, right? So um, the CFP is a great designation for that. The CFA, uh, Chartered Financial Analyst, a lot of people are less familiar with because back in the day, it was kind of for security analysts, for investment folks only. So you don't see many financial planning firms who have CFAs on staff. It's a, it's, I, I kind of describe it as the CF, the CPA designation for the investment world. It's a very rigorous program. I'm very proud of that designation. But what that designation really does is you, you learn about security analysis, you learn about valuation, you learn about portfolio management, you learn about obviously accounting, international accounting, everything to do with, with uh, investments, uh, wealth management, things like that. Uh, and that program obviously has evolved over time as well in terms of kind of the world is much more portfolio management oriented rather than individual stock selection oriented, which say back in the 60s and 70s, the CFA was kind of focused on. So they've evolved very well in terms of what they do. The CDFA, which is a certified divorce financial analyst, really is a is a program that you go through that kind of introduces you to the divorce world and how um, what are the areas and the, the the techniques and the ways that you look at financial issues in a divorce specifically. So it's kind of more of a micro kind of a, of a designation. So, um, but all of them are helpful. Obviously, when you're dealing with a divorce and clients are looking at dividing their estate and how we're going to support our kids and things like that, they're effectively creating a, a new life, a new lifestyle of what they want to create and financial planning, investment management, all of those designations really just support it so well. So what made you decide to add a focus to family law? Well, great question. Um, as I mentioned, I attended this kind of what is collaborative divorce? What is interdisciplinary teams back in 2004? And just kind of didn't know a lot about, you know, kind of this new collaborative thing coming on. But it really struck a chord with me because I had done some litigation support. And um, obviously litigation certainly is appropriate in cases. But I also felt that um, a lot of clients that were divorcing could probably fit very well into a more collaborative type of approach. And so when it became uh, codified in Texas, I, I thought, wow, this is um, this is kind of a problem-solving approach, right? Problem-solving approach to, to divorce. And uh, kind of my engineering background, that's pretty much was my skill set. I mean, that's what you kind of learn in engineering school is you're, you're basically a problem solver. You're, pro you're, you're solving problems all the time. So it kind of fit in with kind of my, I think, natural desire to want to be a problem solver and help people solve, you know, their own problems. We're not really coming in solving their problems or helping them, giving them a framework so they can hopefully solve their own. So I really like the theory behind collaborative. I, and, and I think it was exciting to be able to maybe help clients do divorce in a, in a less worse way, so to speak. So can you describe what your role is in the collaborative process? Uh, absolutely. So normally when I'm brought in, I'm brought in as a financial neutral onto these cases my role starts, first of all, with in a typical litigation case, Holly, as you know, typically the attorneys are doing a lot of the data collection statements, bank accounts, everything about the estate. I pretty much perform that role as a neutral, from a neutral position. So I'm just trying to provide transparency, 
to make sure that everybody understands here are the assets they have, here are the liabilities that you have, and really be that neutral person to come in and collect the financial information so that everybody can feel comfortable that the, all the information has been gathered and that we're all reading from the same songbook, so to speak. And so people are hiding things. People aren't being, um, you know, in collaborative, we agree to be transparent. Sometimes it's a hard thing to do. And um, so part of my role is to collect the information, get everybody comfortable that, hey, we got everything that we need. The second thing I think that's important in my role is I do a lot of education. I try to educate clients in terms of, okay, what do we have? Because like even in my my home, right, uh, I've been married almost 40 years now. And my wife, uh, she, she was a CPA. And so she kind of writes all her bills and pays all the checks and do that. And I obviously do all the investment stuff. So I kind of have my role. She kind of has her role. I get an allowance, I have to report back in where I spent it. But I couldn't tell you exactly where we spend all our money. So I need to be, I would need to be educated if my wife and I were going to go through this. And so part of my role is to help educate and give everybody on the same level playing field in terms of knowledge about their financial estate before they go into, hey, what are our goals and objectives and what are we trying to achieve here? And what are our options to try to settle? Because if if somebody's confused about what they have or what they own, the answer to any option is always going to be no, because my experience is a confused mind always says no. And so part of my role in that is to help with the confusion and help people understand, you know, with their attorneys, help them understand what, what they're dealing with. I think in addition, one of the roles I have is to, as we get into looking at options for settlement, is to help the clients and their attorneys look at different options. I've done this a very long time, worked on hundreds of cases. So I have a lot of experience in terms of kind of seeing different options that, that happen. Of course, clients are going to decide what's the best option for them. But I think I think I provide a role in, in allowing uh, clients and obviously attorneys that are very experienced as in themselves. We all come from a different angle and we can look at different options and brainstorm different options that maybe the client hasn't thought of. And then help them get the resolution of their case uh, and then support the attorneys in any way that I can on the financial side. When the parties are meeting with you as the financial neutral, are the attorneys usually involved or do you usually meet with them separately? Great question. Uh, Typically in the beginning, the way I, I think every financial neutral probably has a different style. The way I like to do it is I do spend time with the client one-on-one in the beginning. Most of that is just getting to know them, getting to know about their background, their history, a little bit about kind of how they've handled money in their marriage, how they've handled things, kind of what their money personality is like, where I can help them, where their fears might be on the money side, and to help gather data and uh, understand what their interests are and goals are on more of a micro level around the investments and, and the financial and the estate. When we kind of, so in far as education is concerned, I do quite a bit of one-on-one with clients. Sometimes I do uh, some budgeting work with clients. So if a client is says, well, hey, I want to stay in the house, I'm going to stay with the kids, what have you, they may have never been involved in writing checks or understanding where they spend their money. So they need to kind of have a view of here's what my budget's going to look like and can I really do this, right? It's kind of that financial planning part of what we do. Even though we're not giving advice, we're just kind of, you know, showing them here's what the numbers look like in terms of your budget or whatever. So sometimes I'll meet with the clients on that. When we get into looking at options and talking about options, I always want the attorneys involved because then at that point, 
clients are thinking about decisions. What do I want to do? And obviously, there's lots of legal implications around all of this because obviously this is a legal process and I'm here to support that process any way that I can. So I definitely want to keep the attorneys very close. So I'm kind of serve the pleasure of the attorneys and their clients. And, and I make sure that when we're looking at options and obviously making agreements that the clients, uh, that the attorneys are, are very much involved in that. So you mentioned a couple of times meeting one-on-one. Do you mean that you were meeting with an individual or are you meeting with the couple without attorneys? I usually never meet with the couples without attorneys. We kind of tried that initially as we began kind of introducing neutrals. We tried all different ways to do it. I found that very quickly, if I would meet with a client individual, clients individually together, I quickly became both the attorney and the mental health professional as well as the financial <laughs> professional. So I decided, look, I got to really stay in my lane, which is not that. So they're always asking legal questions or, or questions about different kinds of things that I'm really not equipped to, to handle or answer. So very early on in my career, I decided I do not meet with clients individually offline as a couple. So I don't do kind of offline mediation or offline work with clients. I I always want the attorneys to be there if the clients are together. That's just the way I like to do it. I think it's the most effective and I think it's the quickest way to get from from start to finish of of how to have the people involved. I I don't want to go off by myself and, and try to create solutions without uh, without input from both the mental health side and also if a mental health person's involved, which I always like that, because again, I end up being the mental health person, which I'm not if they don't have a mental health person, but I always want the attorneys involved at that level. Do you find if you're meeting one-on-one with people, with, in, with individuals, that they start to question anything about neutrality? Oh, he's on her side or he's on his side and because they don't know what's happening in that other meeting? Yeah, I think that I think that's one of the reasons I try to meet with the clients individually in the beginning is try to to hit off some of those concerns. Because one of the things I talk to clients about is there may be a difference in the amount of time I need to spend with each client. So, for example, if I have a spouse who knows nothing about finance, doesn't you know doesn't know how to write a check or doesn't know how to do whatever, uh, I may have to spend quite a bit of time. People process information very differently depending on what the issue is. So. Just like in my marriage, there are issues that I can make decisions like that. My wife, it takes her, you know, months uh, and vice versa. So uh, I explained to the clients that up front, look, I may be spending more time with you. I may be spending more time with your spouse. And I try to anticipate from what they tell me their concerns are about that. I think early in my career, when we did begin to do this, I did get the mental health people and the financial people would tend to get some feedback that, oh, you're not being neutral. Um, sometimes that was because the client didn't like what the neutrals or the, or the, were saying. I think we've become a lot more skilled at how we uh, prepare clients for the process and how we talk to them about what neutrality is, that it's not about, not that it's easy or that it's safe, or, but it's just that we're going to describe what we see from our neutral position. They certainly can disagree because ultimately the power to make an agreement is totally in the client's hands, not our hands. And um, I would say I've, it's been many, many years since I've had a client even bring that up in regards to me or, or even heard it on another case or, or a mental health neutral. I think as a group, we've just gotten much better at that. 
So whenever I have somebody coming on the show, I always ask for them to give me some talking points. And one of the talking points that you provided was on the power of neutrality. Tell us about that. Great question. You know, a great example is, you know, for example, my marriage. I, I'll be married 40 years, as I said, in January. That's a long time. It doesn't seem that long, but it's a long time. And I kind of say that we're kind of in this 98% discount marriage, where if I say something, it's like, you know, David, you don't know what you're talking about. And when she says it to me, I don't, she doesn't know what you're talking about. But if a third party comes in and says the exact same thing we have said, it's like, oh, well, that that's, and that's the answer, right? Because this neutral third party has come in and, and has kind of told us or helped us decide that, you know, it's just a different viewpoint in terms of what that is. So having a neutral that comes in that doesn't really have an interest in the process that really has a goal to help the clients meet their goals, that the clients understand that, hey, look, you're just bringing this framework in, right? This, we like to call it the roadmap to resolution and collaborative. We have this roadmap we follow. We're going to gather data. We're going to look at your goals and interests. We're going to look at the options that you have to settle. We're going to help you achieve an agreement. But all of this structure is the opportunity for you to come up with your own solution, to solve your own problem. We're just the guides very experienced guides, hopefully, and hopefully we can help you do that. So I think the the neutrality part is we're able to come in and help the clients see it from a position, not as their attorney, because they don't want their attorneys to be neutral. They want their attorneys to be advocates. I think also some attorneys like having neutrals because maybe we can tell their clients things that they may can't tell their clients or don't want to tell their clients. Uh, so I think the neutrals can kind of act as a messenger in a, in a good way, right? It's not that it's easy because it's not. The process is difficult. Uh, and the clients are coming to us, obviously, not at their best. So I think it's a way for you to bring in somebody that kind of fills a role that an attorney can't, just cannot play. How many sessions does it usually take in a collaborative case for you to help the parties reach an ultimate financial agreement? That is, as you might imagine, Holly, that's a question we get a lot from the clients, right? Because when we're meeting as a team, uh, those those cases can get expensive for the clients and they, they obviously can add. I think the main thing we tell the clients is that all depends on them and how quickly they can come to agreements. Typically, what we're going to do is we're typically going to sign the clients up in the collaborative process Typically, I'm then going to collect the financial information. Uh, the mental health person typically is going to start working on the parenting plan. They'll be meeting with the clients, usually offline as well, uh, working with the attorneys on the parenting plan. And then we'll come together as a group. We'll start reviewing the estate as a group. We'll have a series of option development meetings. And then typically a meeting to conclude in terms of make sure we have all the agreements and then the attorneys then will go and, and create the legal documents that effectuate the agreements that the clients have made. I tell clients that at a minimum, it usually takes, my experience has been the shortest cases I usually see take four to six months. Most of them I would say is six to 12 months in terms of a typical collaborative case that moves along. But I also find, um, kind of going back to my engineering days, there was always this um, you know, there's this issue in uh, physics and dynamics known as natural frequency. And I think every case kind of has a natural frequency. 
So as you get into a case, it kind of has its natural rhythm in terms of how it goes. And you try to find how, what is that rhythm? How quickly do people make decisions? How quickly are people comfortable? Because a lot of people come in and the mental health people will always ask clients typically, um, okay, client A, client B, where are you on the divorce readiness scale, right? So sometimes you may have a client who's a 10, you know, if I could get married, divorced tomorrow, I would. And you might have somebody who's a zero who says, look, I don't even really, I, I can't even grasp this is even happening. And so what happens is it's very difficult to conclude cases quickly if somebody's a zero on the divorce readiness scale and the other client is a 10. So typically what we have to do is educate, get people emotionally better and get people closer together on the divorce readiness scale before we can actually create an agreement. And then people are different in terms of how they process information, they're different in terms of their knowledge, they're different in terms of how they interact with each other. Um, you know, if both people are 10 on the divorce readiness scale and um, they come into the process with uh, great mental health skills and things like that, we can usually get it going and wrapped up. Doesn't mean it's going to be easy. We get it wrapped up in a reasonable amount of time. So if your typical case is going to take six to 12 months, are you involved at the beginning in trying to help people reach temporary financial agreements that are going to get them through those six to 12 months? Or are you focused solely on the end game? Uh, typically, I'm involved in both. The temporary, um, usually when the cases have started, you know, clients are at different parts, right? Are they still living together? They moved out. What have they done? And so we try to understand what is their temporary parenting and financial arrangement been? Uh, where are the stresses? Uh, typically, somebody's moved out. Now they're usually spending more money than they were spending if they were living together. So typically, there, there are what we would call interim issues where we basically try to stabilize the financial piece and address any financial concerns or parenting concerns, obviously, uh, while the case is starting. And then uh, see if we can get some some uh, temporary agreements in place. A lot of times, if uh, some of the clients already have these, you know, kind of worked through those temporary agreements, uh, sometimes they haven't even thought about them. And, and sometimes uh, they're needing to move out, for example, away from each other, uh, but maybe they don't have the financial means to do so. And we have to kind of creatively problem solve for interim solutions uh, before we can even start thinking about, hey, what is the final solution in terms of these, uh, this process? So a lot of our listeners, most of them are attorneys, and a lot of them may not do collaborative law, but how can they take the working with a financial professional piece and use that in their traditional litigation? Well, I, I, once again, I think, I think where it can come in handy is, you know, bring a financial person into their case, uh, obviously not as a neutral typically, it's going to be an advocate for their client but to come in and kind of be a part of their team and help educate their client, talk to their client about proposals, maybe just have a sounding board for the attorney to talk to, right? Sometimes attorneys call me and say, hey, I got this case and uh, we wanna hire you just to kind of bounce ideas off, talk to our client, those kinds of things. Um, those are typically very short engagements, but I enjoy doing them because once again, they're, they're problem solving cases and. That's what's great about collaborative for me as a neutral is every case is different, every challenge is different, every problem is different. And I really like that rather than just the normal day-to-day -day things that obviously we do. And, and then some clients come in and say, look, I've, I'm about to finish this case. My, I know you, I've worked with you before. Uh, my client needs a financial advisor. And of course I have a company that actually does that and have a whole team here that does that. And 
you know, they like to, they need somebody that they can trust and work with after their case is over to help them go forward. And we'll talk to the client. If it's a fit, great. If it's not, we can refer them out to somebody else as well. We always want to make sure the client gets where they need to go. At what stage of the divorce process do you recommend an attorney try and connect their client with someone like you? Well, earlier is better just because um, it's better to do that before the cart's in the ditch, right? Uh, but sometimes that's unavoidable because the attorney may be say, look, I need some help. I need some support. So I do I do step in many times when kind of the cart's in the ditch and we try to help the client pull it out. Earlier, the better is probably best just because we can then analyze where can we help, where can we see problems down the road on their case, uh, where can we add value, where can we not, right? I've had clients, uh, attorneys call me and say, look, I've got this case, let's talk about it. And I'll kind of move them in another direction where I really don't think I'm a fit for that. Maybe they need a business specialist, maybe they need something totally different than what I provide. And I'm happy to to do that because um, as we all know, if you get yourself in a situation where you're not a good fit, it's not going to work well. And that's not good for anybody. Well, I think having those other referral sources is, yes. it makes somebody extremely valuable because people know, Hey, he's going to be able to help a lot of my clients, but if he, if he can't, he's going to know who can, right. and that can really make you a go-to resource for a lot of attorneys. Exactly. And, and a lot of times when I'm acting as a neutral, and somebody needs a financial planner or something in the process or wants to deal with that, we can we can help with that too. Of course, the attorneys obviously know a lot of financial people they can refer out, you know, business to, but uh, we can help with that. But I think where we bring value is, you know, obviously we understand the divorce process pretty well. I've been collaborative cases since uh, it's been 17 years now. So, um, but I still love it. So like, I, I still, even though it's not easy work, as you know, well know, um, it's satisfying work for me from a collaborative standpoint to see clients, you know, get divorced, I think, in a better way. If if the collaborative process obviously fits for them, which, once again, not every case does fit collaborative. Um, but if it does, it's it's nice to be able to add value to those folks and, and what they're doing. Now, a lot of times they don't see the value because they weren't in the litigation process, which for many of these clients would be a whole lot worse. And so... Um, it's a very satisfying thing to do if you can help. You mentioned that not everyone is a good candidate for the collaborative process. What do you think makes someone a good candidate? Great question. I think what makes a good candidate is that they they really have a problem-solving mindset, right? They really, they understand, hey, this is going to happen. We're going to have to spend money, obviously, to get divorced. And what's the best process and structure for us to do that? And so even though it's going to be difficult, it, it's not like collaborative is, you know, we didn't sit around seeing Kumbaya. It's still like very <laughs> difficult process, right? It's still, it, it still can be very emotional. People can get upset. People can say things. People are not at their best. That's okay. Uh, I think a lot of times people, if, if we even deal with very difficult situations, sometimes difficult emotional situations with kids and families and things like that, uh, I think privacy is a big deal many times for people that come into collaborative. They want their process to be private and confidential, and there's some advantages there. Um, I also think, you know, good candidates, once again, I, I would just go back to people who have and understand the value of working together to solve problems, because at the end of the day, we can provide these structures and opportunities. You know, litigation obviously provides a particular structure. Collaborative does as well. 
but it's ultimately up to the clients to take advantage of the opportunities that they're given. Some do a better job of that than others. And uh, sometimes we have to uh, remind clients what we're trying to achieve in collaborative, what are the kind of the rules of collaborative. And there are a few, there is a small percentage that decide when they get into the collaborative, this isn't working for me. I think I'm going to opt out and go the litigation route. And they certainly still have the option to do that if it doesn't work for them in this process. How often do you see that happening? It's rare. It's very rare. I, I typically see that it's kind of when we're on the one yard line trying to get over, over the finish line where you've done a majority of the work. But maybe somebody feels like maybe there's a, a parenting issue or, or something with the child issue that they that they want or a financial issue or some issue that they they feel like the person in the black robe, they just need their day in court. Most of the time when people don't finish in collaborative, they usually settle very quickly out of outside of collaborative. But there is that rare situation where they go out of collaborative and they keep fighting for two or three years in the courts. And those people, as we know, have a very difficult time even in, even in litigation. So we're almost out of time. But one question I like to ask all of my guests on the podcast is, if you could give one piece of advice to family lawyers, what would it be? I think the one piece of advice I would give to family lawyers is that um, we all need help. Um, I know I do. We all need support. And there's a lot of really good professionals out there that we all you know, need to, to kind of commiserate with. I, I think the thing, one thing I do like about collaborative is that when you put a team together, that has worked together before, two attorneys, mental health, and the financial person that have worked before on cases before. You know each other, you trust each other, you're able to be honest with each other, and it brings a real power to the process for the client that the client will never really see or understand. So I think there's uh, my one piece of advice is we all need help. We can't do this alone. And the value of being in a team, uh, even if it's litigation, uh, having pe- strong people on your team, whether it's financial or mental health or whatever, uh, is very valuable. Just as in my core practice here, we have a team that people who have specialties that we rely upon for them to, to do their best in the area that they're good at. So if our listeners want to learn more about you, where can they go do that? My firm is Lifeway Financial, so lifewayfinancial.com. It's really about my core practice, but I could be reached there. My email is bbrunson at lifewayfinancial.com. So they can always email me or just Google me and I'll, I'll be in there somewhere and they can probably find me and reach out to me and I'll be happy to talk to them and help them any way I can. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I really enjoyed our discussion. And for our listeners, if you enjoyed listening to this podcast, go give us a review and subscribe for future episodes. Thank you, Holly. Appreciate it. The Texas Family Law Insiders Podcast is sponsored by the Draper Law Firm. We help people navigate divorce and child custody cases and handle family law appellate matters. For more information, visit our website at www.draperfirm.com.